From a secret location in room 100 of 540 Jack Gibbs Boulevard, this is Craft. Janice Hefe Durham is a writer who led the Sacramento Bee to receiving two Pulitzer Prizes during her career in the newspaper industry. In her new book, The Hand on the Mirror, she explores her changing sense of the afterlife following the loss of her husband in 2004. She brings the book to Columbus's Thurber House for an Evenings with Authors reading and Q&A on Thursday, April 30th. Janice Hefe Durham, welcome to Craft. Thank you. Thank you for having me, Tyler. Well, we are very glad to have you. Can you tell us about The Hand on the Mirror? Yes. The The Hand on the Mirror is a book about the spiritual journey I experienced following the death of my husband, Max Fessler, to cancer in 2004. A series of really quite extraordinary events occurred after Max died mm-hmm. over a period of time. And... While I was experiencing many of these events, I was blocking them. I was setting them aside because I couldn't make sense out of them. Right. So to try to try to give you an example of some of what was happening, the first week after he died, I woke up. It was the exact one day, exactly to the day of his death. I woke up and took our yellow lab Casey for a walk on the American River pathway. I came back in about an hour, as always, and was undoing his leash, looked up at a very large clock that we had, an Ethan Allen clock, over the fireplace in our family room. Mm-hmm. And as I looked up, it was around 7.30 in the morning, I noticed that it said 12.44. At first, it didn't register. Right. And then I thought, 12.44? How could it be 12.44? It's 7.30. And 12.44 was the exact time of Max's death a week prior. Mm -hmm. So stunned by this experience, I quickly ran down the hallway to my son's room and he was 14. I woke him up and as any young boy at 14, he came quietly down the hallway in his padded socks and said, what mom? And there we looked up at the clock together and his eyes became quite large. And he said, mom, I don't understand. What, What is that? I said, I don't either. Wow. Neither he nor I could have lifted that clock. It was too heavy, and it was positioned and juxtaposed above the fireplace in such a way that it would be impossible to move or to alter. So that that was the beginning, and subsequent to that, over the next several weeks, there were many instances where the lights would flicker, doors would open and then shut on their own. Mm-hmm. And then one evening, there was a time where um, I heard something that sounded like tapping or, or pounding on the wall of the bathroom next to where Max resided before he died. And upon entering that room, I noticed that the wall was actually pulsating slightly. So this, of course, to a very rational person, made no sense. Right. And I I kept trying to fit these occurrences into some sort of rational explanation. Right. I believe that, you know, as humans, we always seek rational explanations. We want to feel safe. We want to feel normal and ordinary. So that was what I was trying to do, but it it wasn't working (laughs) because they kept coming, coming, you know, the instances kept coming. In addition to that, you know, I, I was a publisher of a major metropolitan newspaper, the Sacramento Bee, and as such was immersed in a fact-based environment. Everything we did there was to produce news that we felt was accurate and balanced and 
fact checking was a big part of that. So for me, there was no way to make sense of this. There was no rational explanation, which is why initially I ignored or compartmentalized these events. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, you uh, I you mentioned that you you came from the news, and and you've already sort of elaborated on on how that that background with scrutiny, you know, affected how how you how you interpreted these things that were happening. Uh, how did it how did it affect this book you know your your journalistic background how did it affect your writing process because that's because that's well, what you're um, most familiar with i presume yes well my background i i spent 20 some years at the los angeles times where mm-hmm. i was a senior vice president of advertising and an officer of the company um at, at my most uh, the final years there and then I was recruited away from there to be publisher and president of the Sacramento Bee newspaper in Sacramento. Mm-hmm. And in that responsibility, I was uh, in charge of the entire newspaper, so all facets, including business and news and our editorials. Yeah. I myself was not a journalist, so I didn't have experience in writing, per se. I had experience in business. Mm-hmm. Um, responsibility for the writing and the editorial, but not not you know my own... I was not on my own doing that work. So uh, it was more the environment that I was in that um, trained me over many years to be very research-driven, investigative-driven, and um, precise. So that's why, ultimately, Tyler, I came to a point of view with these events where I determined that I needed to investigate them. Mm-hmm. Because, because I... I realized that, you know, even though I was startled at first and blocked, I ultimately became intrigued and even curious as these things would unfold. So a friend sat me down one day and said, why don't you do what you do in the newspaper, your business? You spent your entire life there. Why don't you investigate? And it came as if a light bulb had gone off in my head. It came the information to me. And I consider myself a professional skeptic, so I thought, well, this is good. Yeah. As a professional skeptic, I can go after this whole um, arena that I have no familiarity with. And my basic question was, does our consciousness survive death? Is there more than our physical reality? Mm-hmm. And so I, I wanted to approach this both from a scientific standpoint but also from a spiritual standpoint. And I felt that um, by investigating both realms, I would be able to come to terms with the events that had happened. And really what prompted this ultimately in the most dramatic way was uh, a handprint that appeared on the mirror of the bathroom where Max had resided in his last months. Mm-hmm. And this was on a beautiful Saturday afternoon, very sunny, but it was a sad Saturday. It was actually Mother's Day 2005, which was exactly one year to the day when Max had passed on. And my son and I, who was 14, he was 14, at, excuse me, 15 at the time, he and I were in the backyard and he was doing his homework and I was reading all of my material from the newspaper that I read every weekend, you know, always catching up on periodicals and uh-huh. so on. And decided to make us a sandwich, went into the house to wash my hands in that guest bathroom area where he'd been. And I looked up and saw 
a very large handprint perfectly formed mm-hmm. as if it were an x-ray. Yeah. And I looked at this powdery substance in this handprint, and it's very interesting in life and human experience when your mind works to catch up with your eyes. Sure. My eyes yeah. were looking at this, and I knew that it was real because I could see it. But my mind was saying, you cannot possibly be seeing what you're seeing. So like any mother, I called to my son, Tanner, mm-hmm. come inside. And he quickly ran inside. Are you okay, Mom? I said, look. And he looked up. Again, it was very much like the clock in terms of the, how this all occurred. We, we looked at it together. He looked at me, looked back at the mirror, and then said, how could this be possible? So I jumped to the conclusion, well, Tanner, did you do this when I wasn't looking or something You came in here? Mm-hmm. Of course, his young man, 15-year-old hand was nothing like the hand that we were looking at on the mirror. That hand was much larger. The base of the palm was wider. And the way the fingers were juxtaposed with that hand was reminiscent of, very much reminiscent of Max's hand. So wow. we both looked at it and... Uh, scared in disbelief, mm-hmm. and he, I said, Neil, honey, you ought to go out and play some basketball. I'm going to deal with this, and I thought to myself, for some reason, I had the wherewithal to take a photograph to document it, thankfully, mm-hmm. so I, I did that. Now, time goes on, and another year comes, and it's now the second anniversary of Max's death, uh-huh. and we have a second set of prints. This time, yes, they're little wings and then an angel. Almost, if you could imagine an angel at the top of a Christmas tree perfectly formed, that's what was on the mirror. So there was this angel with this little other one sort of in the corner with wings and then a third image that looked like it was coming from the side, the image of of the angel. Once again, I documented this. Now, many other things go on in between, which I won't go into now because it would be too elaborate, but the third anniversary of Max's death, here we are with a most astonishing event, which is that we had gone to dinner with friends because they were they knew it would be a tough time for us. I came home, we together, Tanner and I came home, and on the mirror of our bathroom, that same bathroom, Mm -hmm. was this time a left hand instead of a right. Wow. And instead of being formed perfectly, very much like a human hand on an x-ray, this hand was far more amorphous, as if it it had dissipated. It's still a hand. You can see all the, the little bones and sort of the structure of the palm and the fingers. But at the tip of the fingers, it's as if energy is passing out of it, and they go almost like a candle as if it's flowing. You'll see that in the book, in the photographs. But um, that was the third year. So during this time, it's now 2007, I am still publisher of the newspaper. Mm -hmm. And that is a major rationale for why I did not do anything further. In my role as publisher, it was not only within the newspaper, but obviously in the community as well. And I was not going to do anything to jeopardize that role or that position um, because it would not be proper. And um, I just determined that I was going to 
I did document it that I was going to take notes, but I would make certain that I had data to go back to if in the future sometime. I, I didn't know when I wanted to investigate or do something. So mm-hmm. it wasn't until after I um, retired in 2008, remarried, retired in 2008, that I said, now is the time. And I was prompted again by my friend who said, why don't you do what you did all those years in the newspaper business? So that was when I decided to investigate. So so maybe you could elaborate then on, on the types of research. Obviously, these these amazing events the the handprints and and the and the figures of of angels appearing on the mirror that's what that's what gives the book its title and that's that's some of the the most interesting stuff but what sort of research did you do uh you know after you retired and and to try and investigate what was going on well one of the first things i did was talk to uh, a physicist a fellow named dr paul wenland and Dr. Paul Wenland has his PhD from UCLA, and he spent his entire career measuring and understanding light. And he actually had built the sensors for the Voyager spacecraft. He, he then sold his company, and he began to explore on his own this whole notion of human consciousness. Because my, my question, again, going back, my question was, I really, the basic question was, does our consciousness survive death? Is there more than a physical reality? So mm-hmm. I found out about him and I went to see him and I wanted to explore with him some of what it was he had done in his work as a physicist and then also the work he had done in exploring human consciousness. And he taught me about quantum physics. Now, I am not an authority. And even <laughs> he would tell you, and you'll read in the book, he says, you know, I've studied this my whole life, I still don't understand it. And he said it made people like Einstein pulled their hair out because they even said it was spooky. He did, Einstein. He didn't understand it. But as you may or may not know, um, Tyler, that you probably do, that uh, Isaac Newton affected most of our physics thinking Mm -hmm. for about 350-some years. And it wasn't until the early 1900s that quantum physics, uh, led by a group of physicists, began to come about. And basically... There, without getting into it too much, because it would, you, know, you can't in an interview like this, but um, basically where Paul Enlund came out is he ended up, because of his work in quantum physics, believing that there is more than a physical reality. And he gave me just two examples about how quantum physics educated him or led him in terms of, of this. Okay. One is this. Um, quantum physics predicts that the mind can influence the behavior of energy and matter. So you have to wrap your head around that. The mind can actually influence the behavior of energy and matter. Now, this is the point where this is the point where I have to trust you because I don't know the first thing about well this is the first thing I know about quantum physics. <laughs> yes, and many people don't know. I I certainly I was just where you are <laughs> when mm-hmm. I started. I had no that's why I want to kind of keep this simple because most people or lay people are just like us. They don't know what it is, and they don't necessarily even want to know or need to know the, the intricacies and the weeds of it. But basically, the, the belief there is what they call the prediction. It's predicted by quantum, quantum physics, also known as quantum mechanics, mm-hmm. that the mind can influence the behavior of energy and matter. And the second point is that an energy particle such as light, and this is, by the way, at a subatomic level, not at a, at a larger level, but at a very subatomic level, that an energy particle 
is actually observed in multiple locations. And third, it isn't until it's observed that the location is determined. Okay. So with this is background, I thought to myself, the, the leap I took is that if our consciousness can exist outside of ourselves, which I believe it can, I don't believe it's just mind-produced, but its consciousness goes beyond, it's outside of ourselves. If the mind exists outside of itself, and if it can influence energy and matter, Max's mind could have actually put the powder on the mirror because the mind can influence matter. So that was one conclusion I came to, that it was possible. And then the second thing was, when he said that, um, it, you know, he taught me that the handprint possibly didn't exist until I observed it. If you look at this as multi-locations, that particles can be in multi, more than one location, uh-huh. it is possible if I hadn't walked in and seen this print on the mirror, maybe it wouldn't have been there. But it was me who walked in, and because he and I were linked with our love, mm-hmm. and he had passed, that it was possible I was able to see it. I know this is a little esoteric, but these fundamental um, workings of quantum physics I found to be highly fascinating, and they kind of broke for me. It was the opening to me beginning to be curious, much more curious about exactly what our consciousness is mm-hmm. and how it behaves and what it's capable of. But one of the other things I did was go meet with a woman named Dr. Carol DeLaHeron, who is a psychologist, a lawyer, a PhD, and she was running a nonprofit, which still exists, or a nonprofit educational research organization that's called the Monroe Institute. Okay. And then, yep, the Monroe Institute is in favor of Virginia. It was started by a fellow named Bob Monroe. And just quickly about him, very, very interesting. He was a radio executive, and he was totally fascinated. This is like in the 1970s with the study of consciousness. Mm-hmm. He was particularly, I should say, interested in what the Russians were doing during the Cold War years where they were using audio equipment. Now, he's a radio executive, so he's interested, like you, you're in the radio business. He was interested in how does it work? How does all this function scientifically? So at some some you know time d- during his life, he ended up having what's called an out-of-body experience. Really? And that, what that is is, yeah, you, you actually leave your body, your, your soul or your consciousness, what, you know, the different words for it, but the essence of who you are outside of the physical self, it leaves. <laughs> I know it sounds crazy. Or but it he, sounds he like it would induce like motion sickness. Yeah, maybe, or you could say drugs or, you know, seizures or hallucinogens or, you know, all kinds of things could, but he claims that he actually had it through some sleep deprivation, I think, because he was looking at sleep, sleep, what they were doing with sleep disorders in the Russian um, work. Mm-hmm. At any rate, he, he ended up leaving his body, and, and when he had this experience, he could see him, he could see his wife in his bed below him, and he said, what is this? I'm outside of my body. I'm often, I'm hitting the, the ceiling, I'm looking down. So he decided he wanted to research it, and he put together these kind of teaching techniques that are audio grid processes. There's like hearing mechanisms in private booths, 
and they work to synchronize between your left brain and your right right brain Mm -hmm. through sound. And when you do that, you end up going into what he calls altered states of consciousness. Okay. So you can travel back in time and you can travel forward in time. So that's just another example of of a piece of research. And I don't want to go on too much, but there was another one here that I thought one of my favorites was Dr. Dean Radin, who is an electrical engineer and a psychologist. He has his PhD from the University of Illinois. Mm -hmm. And um, he heads up an organization called IONS, which is Institute of Noetic Sciences. And they're up in Petaluma, California, not too far from where I am here in San Francisco. And they're dedicated to the exploration of the potential and power of consciousness. And they firmly believe that consciousness exists beyond the person, beyond the physical. And so he studies this. Well, what's fascinating about his organization is the person who began his organization, just like Bob Monroe began the Monroe Institute, there was a man named Edgar Mitchell. And you're too young to remember Edgar Mitchell because this would have been 1971. What year were you born? 93. Okay, (laughs) way after that. So um, there there was an astronaut named Edgar Mitchell you may have studied in school, and he was on the Apollo 14 mission with Alan Shepard, and he and Edgar Mitchell landed on the moon and walked on the moon. Well, when they returned, he, he came from the moon to Earth, and he had what he called this unbelievable, breathtaking experience of seeing our Earth floating in the vastness of space. And he said, and I quote here, he said, there was the presence of divinity that became palpable. So he knew that there was more. He knew that there was something beyond our physical self, Mm -hmm. and he wanted to explore it. So he opened up this institute and these people are studying constantly everything they can about the consciousness. Uh-huh. And they also study topics such as telepathy, which is mind to mind. You know, when you can share a mind almost with someone, your sister calls you, say, I can't believe you just called, I was just thinking about you. Mm-hmm. Or clairvoyance, that you perceive a distant object. Uh, precognition, which is very interesting. That's where you see, you predict something. It's going to happen, and then it actually happens. So he's looking at all that. But most interesting of all was he's doing these studies in what's called meta-analysis. And it taught me sort of the power of of what data can do because he worked at Princeton for a number of years, and they looked at all sorts of experiments and conducted all sorts of uh, experiments about whether or not the mind could affect outcome. In other words, if you have intention in your mind, can it affect something outside of your mind, which would give evidence and credence to the fact that our consciousness goes beyond our minds. Mm -hmm. And in so doing, they had something like 800 separate experiences. They combined them all. And the startling result was that experientially, the odds that the human mind can affect outcomes actually a trillion to one. So well, those are some odds. Were, yeah, those are some odds. These were some of the things that I learned. And the last person I'll mention here, who I think is an extremely good example of studying whether or not you know there's more to our physical reality than just our bodies, is a, a doctor named Dr. Bruce Grayson, and he's a professor of psychiatry 
or was a professor of psychiatry at the University of Michigan and the University of Connecticut. In fact, he headed up a clinical division for a while at the University of Connecticut. Uh-huh. Then he went to the University of Virginia and he did his residency in psychology there. And he headed up an organization called Cedar Creek Institute. Okay. And basically, they, like the Monroe Institute and like IONS, they, they are looking at areas of human, what they call human potential. And he, for three decades, 30 years, looked at NDEs, which are near-death experiences. Okay. So what happens here is you're so young, you don't have to think about any of this yet. But um, <laughs> what happens here, we hope, we hope, is that when you, when you do age, sometimes you have, you know, cardiac arrest can occur um, in your family sure. so or in a loved one. So people who had cardiac arrest or other sorts of life-threatening events, he reports out on some 860 of those occurring where these people have experiences of floating outside of their body. They move kind of through a tunnel okay. and then they see a, what they call a being of light. And they, they are in this kind of life review, very short, very quick about childhood, you know, what you did right, what you did wrong, you know, marriage, it's whatever. This is, this is the, this, the classic like out-of-body experience and the life flashing before your eyes. Yes, yes, the classic, you're out of your body. In this case, you're about to die. You're out of body, you're about to die. And what comes up is, where, you know, how did this happen, this whole review of my life? How did that, mm-hmm. who, who generated that? Where did that come from? So he studied all those, and I think that's probably the best evidence we have is evidence of, of people who have actually experienced that. Because these people don't talk to one another, yet they report the same um, elements uh, in, in their experiences. So um, I think that was a pretty good indicator to me that that um, there was more. That when you die, you don't really die. Your life doesn't end. It goes on in another form. The, I mean, the research on consciousness is really quite fascinating. Uh, I want to turn now to to how the book has been received. I know it, it doesn't release for another uh, two weeks as we're recording this, but what sort of responses have you gotten from early readers? Well, my early readers are mainly family and friends. <laughs> okay. So, well, hopefully, hopefully good they, then, right? They tell me they love it. <laughs> but but um, I, I have had a few journalists who've read it, and um, I just spoke with one today, as a, as a matter of fact, who was interviewing me uh, with a Northern California newspaper, okay. and she had read it, and she told me that she thought that the the humor in the book was of consequence um, and that, you know, there, there were parts of the book that made her cry uh, because they were very touching. It's a very personal story. For and, sure. And, you know, I talk a lot about love in the book. It's not just about science and spirituality. It's about that which binds all of us, and that is about love and how powerful love can be in our lives. I talk about the love I had for Max, mm-hmm. the love I have for my husband now and my family, and then a kind of rough relationship. I had a challenging, I should say, relationship with my mother through through many years, and yet right before she died, we had a magnificent reconciliation and um, <clears throat> I think a profound understanding of almost a redemption around forgiveness 
Mm-hmm. That was very, very powerful. And I, I think, you know, we all conduct our lives every day with what I would consider, and many of us, you know, we all consider practical applications of running to appointments and going to our jobs and raising our children. And we don't stop and think about what will happen when that person we love so much isn't there and how will we cope with that loss. And then when death strikes and you have to face it, you know, you're, you're often ill-equipped because so few people in our society want to talk about this topic. We shy away from it. And one of the main reasons that I wrote this book was really for that, was okay. for that purpose of, of I, w- I want to encourage others to talk openly about death and, and if they had their own experiences of communicating with a loved one after they had passed. And I'll tell you a quick story here. Um, where I live in, in San Francisco area right now. Uh-huh. We have a home in Idaho as well. But um, we're here, and there is a woman who's very, very kind and nearby here, a neighbor. And she said, oh, what are you doing? We're just talking. And I was sharing my some thoughts about my book. And she said, oh, I need to tell you about my brother who died of Lou Gehrig's disease at a young age and how it took our family. And then she told me about some occurrences after that that were otherworldly and she said but I don't want you to tell anyone because I'm in the real estate business and I don't want it to get out okay well don't tell <laughs> me I, thought, I don't want to ru- I don't want to ruin her career exactly <laughs> that's why we're not saying who this person is by any means so um we would never do that so we keep you know that's why I'm being she's anonymous but the point is that um that this is what happens. And another very good example, which is really the impetus for the original, when I originally wrote the book, was a woman who I met through some friends. We became good friends in Sun Valley. And she turned to me one day and we were talking about the book. She, we were in a line standing to walk into an event. She turned around and said, um, I, need, I need to tell you something. And she told me the story about her. she had been diagnosed with breast cancer nine years previous. Mm-hmm. And she talked about how she was afraid to tell her husband because what happened is the moment that she was told that she had it by the doctor, she was in the doctor's office with her husband and the doctor. She was sitting on the examination bed and the doctor said, I'm sorry, you know, you, you have uh, stage four breast cancer. Wow. She said she left her body and she floated to the top of the room. She was bumping on the feeling, sort of like what Bob Monroe had explained. And she said, I looked down and saw everything in that room perfectly clearly. I saw my husband. I saw the doctor. I saw the bed. I saw the utensils. And she said, I was not inside of myself. And then she started to cry and said, I have never been able to tell my husband because I'm afraid of what he'll think. So I'm not, I mean, these people are all anonymous. And, and and that's good to be anonymous, but it makes me sad mm-hmm. that they feel that they can't come forward because their society doesn't permit it. It's embarrassing for them. So I was encouraged to write this book to hopefully provide for a conversation to take place. And if this conversation were to take place in a healthy and open way, it's possible that the media, the press, 
would actually begin to cover it. And if the press were to cover it in a serious and respectable way, it's possible that the scientific discovery and research could be supported with more funding. So, I mean, hopefully that's ultimately what could be achieved here. And I write about that in the book. I have a whole chapter devoted to kind of a a plea to the media to take it on seriously when and if it's possible and at at appropriate times. That's that's interesting. It It seems that you have some very, like, very human takeaways from this and that you're opening actual discussions uh, with actual people. But we also have larger-scale practical outcomes that could lead to more funding and more and more research into just exactly what happens with consciousness. Exactly, exactly. Well, I, I think it's, you know, very, again, very interesting. Um, but a lot of people might disagree with the way you understand your experiences and that's that's why people have trouble discussing it openly uh and so i'm curious has it been more nervous or more cathartic sharing your ideas uh openly i i think it's been cathartic because it's honest you know when you're in the truth speaking the truth the best that you know the truth to be then you're always feeling better about yourself as a person. Sure. But but I also think the um, I understand the skepticism, mm-hmm. and I respect I respect it. I mean, I consider myself a skeptic, actually a professional skeptic, with the work that I did for so many years. And right. so I appreciate I actually appreciate anytime anyone wants to say I don't believe this, or I think it's you know she imagined it or. She was in such deep grief that she could, she wasn't thinking right. Mm-hmm. I I I get that, and I I mean I thought that about myself <laughs> in the beginning, but with a pattern of many years and many other issues uh, occurring, I had rugs that moved and I had footprints that appeared on a club chair in our house in Sun Valley. Just a couple other examples. Mm-hmm. Those things were real. And this was years after Max had gone on, had died rather than I had gone on with my life and was remarried. And it just, these events persisted. So I, I felt that if Max had indeed figured out a way to reach over from the other side, that I had to do my part. I had to meet him halfway. If I had turned my back on him, I couldn't have lived with myself. It would just be, it wasn't possible. So I risked the book in that way, in Mm -hmm. that I know that there will be the skeptics out there. And I, you know, I'm not worried about that. I'm not afraid of that. I think that's just, you know, that goes with the territory. Okay. Well, then it seems that you you understand writing this book is a pretty positive experience, Uh, but it is, it's such a, it's such a personal project reflecting on something that's been, so important in your life. Um, so I'm curious uh, about about you and your writing. Do you see yourself writing more books in the future? I mean, it, it in in some sense, it's too early to ask that because this book is just releasing now. But uh, do you see yourself continuing to write since you're retired from from the the news industry? Well, actually, I've been formulating some thoughts about a, a second book. Mm-hmm. I would like to write about cancer 
And I, I, I want to write about it in a different way than what I've seen uh, written to date. And there's much that's been written and much that I look up to and herald as, you know, authorities and, you know, excellent authors and writers who've done their homework and, you know, doctors who research this and live with it that I wouldn't presume for a moment to be on that level. Sure. I would like to do something quite different, which is to write about the role of the caretaker when someone in the family is diagnosed with cancer. Because okay. what I have found since Max was diagnosed, you know, it's sort of like in life sometimes until something happens to you, you don't know about it, but then when it does, you do. So since Max had been diagnosed so suddenly out of the clear blue with this insidious disease, it's not like a heart attack, you know, it's very different. It, it comes up on you and sometimes you can't see the symptoms. They don't present themselves and then by the time they do, you're in stage four, and then it's terminal. And since Max was in that situation, it was six months from time of diagnosis to his death, it was brutal. Um, it was just brutal. And now, ever since then, I run into so many people who end up telling me that they have a loved one who has been diagnosed with cancer mm -hmm. and what they have gone through. So I would like to write a story about the caretaker's experience. In other words, how do you help the person you love go through this journey, this yeah. medical journey where they have to go through a, a medical experience. They also have to uh, often find hospice and they have to navigate through a very complex, complex healthcare, you know, setup. And then how do you at home cope with the change in your relationship and, you know, just the overall sadness that you're dealing with. So I, I, I would like to find a book, find in me a way to write that book. And I would, I would need to do homework, a lot of homework and research to, to gather other stories. And then also I'd like to interview some of the hospice caretakers in the medical establishment. Well, I think that's, I mean, it's, it's very interesting. It's another case of write what you know. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. All right. Well, Janice Heafy-Durham, thank you so much for joining us on Craft. Thank you very much, Tyler. I appreciate it. For more information from my guests, visit www.crafttheshow.com. This is Doug Dangler. Until next time, be creative. <laughs>